friends, we welcome you to another episode of Churches Changing Podcast. I'm Paul Nixon, and I'm here with Michael Beck and Kenda Dean, and we're going to have a good time talking about how church is changing today. Kenda is a professor of practical theology at Princeton Seminary, and Ministry Incubators has been one of your playgrounds for good fun in the last few years. Michael is the Executive Director for Fresh Expressions United Methodist, FXUM, yes, and also you work a a doctoral program that you oversee at United Seminary in Fresh Expressions. To Kenda and to Michael, I say, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Michael's the one in the middle of the hurricane, so glad you're here. And Michael is in the middle of a storm today, but there's always a storm of some sort these days. So I am excited about this conversation because you both work on the cutting edge of where faith community is headed in our time. And I just look forward to interacting with you as the Spirit leads. The dust is settling, I guess, from this pandemic we've been in. Um, Maybe not, but the world has sure changed a lot more in the last couple of years cultural upheaval and political upheaval and economics and oh my goodness. But for each of you, I'll just start with this. What is the the first shift that comes to mind for you as you think about kind of the ways that faith communities morphing these days? Yeah, I'll start. To me, that's an obvious answer. I think congregations are willing to try things they've never tried before more than I've ever seen it. But it's a double whammy because the other side of that is they're too exhausted from the pandemic and everything else going on to do very much of it. But that's the change that I see. You think the pandemic was kind of a wake-up call to churches to know they had to do something? I mean, is that part of it? Yeah, I don't even think they had time to think about whether they were awake or not. They just did it. Yeah, And it was mostly adaptation of stuff. You know, it wasn't that they were doing things that were all that new, but the bar is pretty low for a lot of congregations on what constitutes new ministry, right? So it felt new and it made people, I think, less afraid to explore, you know, change in their churches. That, that I think, is great news for the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that, that in the recovery community, we have this really cool acronym for God, the gift of desperation. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes that's the seedbed for innovation and trying new things. But I think more recently, I'd say that churches are realizing small is beautiful, that maybe maybe Jesus was on to something with this whole teaching about that. And I hope that there's been like a leveling of the church's pride about big as successful. And I have a lot of questions more than I have answers about just metrics that still measure what success looked like in the 1950s that is no longer actually relevant to our current situation in most contexts. You, you all know the cartoon of the picnic basket blanket situation, and an ant comes along and carries off the whole picnic basket, this tiny <laughs> little animal carrying off this thing, a piece of pie, fried chicken, whatever, that's many, many times its own weight. I kind of see the church coming to a place where small and and healthy, partnered with the Spirit, we do that. We're like the ant on the picnic blanket. Does that resonate with anything that you're seeing with clients or colleagues? Great metaphor. 
Yeah, I think it. I think it's a terrific image. I, I mean, I go to a little church that is, you know, maybe 15, 20 people on a Sunday. And that's what people, people online, in addition to that, might add another five. But they've had to learn to carry that picnic basket with very few people. You know, it's a, it's a learning curve, I think, for us, because we all want to carry huge picnic baskets. And sometimes we need to carry, you know, one piece of pie at a time. We have to learn how to do this. But I'm really fascinated by the micro churches conversation that is picking up steam. And frankly, I think we've always had them, but we haven't really known they were. We, a lot of times we don't think they count as churches, you know, but I'm with you, Michael. I think that's a beautiful and very faithful form that we are kind of moving into. Who are you two watching out there these days? Church, movement, thought leader, author? What's, who's, who's kind of tickling your interest? You know, for me, I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to keep up with my students. And I'm learning more than I'm teaching. I think uh, one of the great things about, you know, dissertations and, and learning from master's students is they're on the edge of this knowledge uh, base. And, and so I'm learning from them. I'm not in one particular person's not standing out to me, but I think I've been studying a, a little bit about the Passio Dei. There's some missiologists that have been talking about this, and I can't even pronounce their names because they're mostly like German folks, but the Missio Dei conversation, I think, needs to change a little bit, that if it's not anchored in the compassion of Christ, and if we don't go about it in the self-emptying way of Jesus, then we're kind of missing the mark. So I've been, that's been my like thing that I keep coming back to and I'm kind of following. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because the things that are capturing my attention kind of fall into that too. One thing I'm following is just in the last couple of days, two different people told me, if you want to see how a denomination does innovation right, look at the Uniting Church in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I touched base with a Canadian friend of mine and I said, are these guys, are they right? Are, is this really, is God on the loose? In the, and he's, uh, he's not exactly, he can be very cynical, right? But he's like, nope. I'm seeing some things that are really, really good. And I think there is something that they're doing right. It's seldom that you get an endorsement of a whole denomination like that. So that's on my list of things to look up. The other thing that I've been kind of captured by lately is I've been a longtime fan of Sam Wells writing. He's currently the pastor at St. Martin's in the Fields in London. And I talked to a friend of mine, James Fawcett, who's a youth pastor, but he's working with Sam to make his relational theology more broadly accessible. And so it's a very Jesus-y, very spirit-driven, but not a shred of churchy lingo anywhere. And, you know, there's lots of relational ministry stuff out there, but but Wells' approach borrows a lot from Montessori education, and it's so full of wonder that it's really direct and simple. And anyway, they're making this course, this disciple-making course. It's called Being With. They've been trying it out. They've got a website now, which I think we should all check out. And the reason I like it for the conversation on doing new things in churches is because this approach, this being with theology, I think helps us keep from getting out over our skis on this. You know, it takes us a hot minute to go from trying God's new thing to, wait, no, our new thing, you know. And we we have a lot of trouble talking about innovation without sliding into the business frameworks because it's what we're it's what we know. But they don't work when you're talking about divine innovation, right? So divine innovation has nothing to do with building a better mousetrap, not at all. So 
Anyway, being with, it maps really well onto entrepreneurial ministry because basically what all entrepreneurial ministries are trying to do is translate the experience of God being with us into how we are going to be with other people. And I kind of love withness, you know, as a as a corrective, you know, in this work. You know, you're talking about the Uniting Church of Canada. That's a that was interesting to me because the congregation where we worship and serve, which by the way is the smallest church that I've been a part of in decades, it is in partnership with a oh interesting a, a United Church of Canada group that came almost like an old lay witness mission to work with us. And out of that work, we have had such a fruitful time. That was right before the pandemic, and it was so helpful. That's just interesting. I hadn't thought about that denomination larger. Well, just to the previous thought there, I'm kind of working out my theology on this publicly on a, on a little cheap website called patsyodei.com. And I'm bringing together some different kind of thought leaders that are, I'm really thinking about a passional church or in Kinda's language, like a withness church and, and the compassion of Jesus being kind of the center of that. But the small is beautiful. I just give a quick little snapshot of, of my week last week. So we had a tattoo parlor church. So a bunch of folks had church in a tattoo parlor. We had about, you know, 20-ish people there for that, mostly millennials, Gen Zs. We worshiped Jesus, had communion, got tattoos. Uh, we had church at, at a Tesla supercharger where we, we talked about eco-theology, creation care, those kind of things, and how Jesus fits into that. Really kind of a, a secular crowd there, but there were some really cool, interesting conversations that were happening. And we had a yoga church that happened. And then we had like our traditional churches, smaller number, like we have three services. We have a thing called Recovery Church. But our largest church is a dinner church. It had 75 people in it last week. And probably 74 of those people, everybody but me, doesn't go to church anywhere else. But they're gathering around a meal, participating in a Jesus story. So all those things, like scale-wise, they're small. These are lay people that are leading them. But when you look at them together as an ecosystem, it's quite a significant number of people, but it's connected around their, their rhythms and passions and like normal spaces of life where that's happening. And I just think there'll be more and more of that over time. And there'll be less and less like big churches with full-time appointed pastors to do that. And it'll be more of a, a equipping laity to kind of be in ministry as a priesthood of all believers. So, Michael, are those various communities, does a clergy person show up in all of those spaces each time? Or is it partly or, or totally lay-led in many of those places? Yes. Yeah, so my wife and I are co-pastors. We do our best to be there as cheerleaders, encouragers, um, like, hey, that was awesome what you did there. Let's talk about what was good about that. You know, I probably would have went a different direction with this, but but not as the leaders per se, but more of like in that support role. It gets a little interesting with sacrament sometime because we are having the Lord's Supper and people are being baptized in these things. It's fully their church, you know, whether it's in the tattoo parlor or the dog park or wherever. So we have to play within our rules there and operate within our, our system. So we're finding creative ways to do that. But for the most part, it's it's totally lay-led with us kind of encouraging and supporting. If, if you all could get someone to come and play in your sandbox, 
anyone out there. I mean, Michael, I hear that, I mean, you, you really revel in just having ordinary people that don't darken the doors of churches to play in the sandbox with you. But is there anybody that you think of that might be a lot of fun to do some ministry with, to do some innovation with, maybe not even a church person? <laughs> well, you know, I saw, I, when I hear questions like this, like the right answer is always Jesus, right? <laughs> so, or I, I feel like, or I need somebody like that wants to solve world hunger or bring world peace or save the planet. Or, and the person I keep thinking about is Weird Al. And <laughs> I mean, he's in the news a lot right now, right? But he's also so weirdly normal, you know? And he's a humble, devout Christian and He's crazy talented. The first the first concert we ever took our kids to was a Weird Al concert. And we thought it was just going to be kind of a fun kids thing. And I left thinking, man, this guy's a genius. And he's got such great people sense. And he also can actually sing. So he is modeling kind of a way of being in the world that I really actually admire, particularly because he does it in a culture that is so celebrity everything, you know, and he's part of that, but he also somehow normalizes a little bit. I think the church could use a lot more normalizing with weird owls. What about you, Michael? Yeah, you know, if I could, I, I would probably try to get someone on Elon Musk's engineer team, probably not Elon himself, because there's all kinds of things we could talk about there, but the people that are launching, you know, three and four space shuttles into out, outer space every week, where it's like NASA is trying to get one up for like four months now or whatever. I feel like that has a whole denominational connection in my world. And we're, we're, we're NASA. We're not SpaceX. So but I would love to sit down and learn like their process of yeah. how they just kind of iterate, experiment, uh, the risks that they're really willing to take. To like just try something in a completely different way, like a rocket that can re-land. How cool would that Paul, you're the right guy to do this. Yeah. Figure out a way to take a group to, you know, just hang out with the SpaceX people for a little while. Just today I read William Shatner's testimonial of yeah. actually going out into space. It was actually a little scary. <laughs> it was it was a lot scarier than it was when he was playing it on TV. He looked out into that darkness and it was like, gulp. Um, <laughs> wow. You know, we are going, as a denomination right now, United Methodist Church, not all of our listeners are UMC, but we're going through a season, a moment, and regrouping and some, some folks are leaving. But I get this sense that there's a clarity of vision that will be emerging in the next year or so. Is there something that you would love to see in that vision? Mm. Or maybe that you already see emerging, but is there something that as we begin to sort of move beyond the season of, am I one of these or one of those, but we begin to, to look at ministry more readily, what, what kind of clarity would you hope for for us? You know, I, I had an opportunity to to sit with a group of younger folks that are connected to Methodism in some way, or we're trying to get them connected anyway. But we we thought through the values of FXUM together, and like, what are what are these key ingredients that we we think like this should be a church? And we we came up with this, you know, inclusive, accessible, transformative, and connectional. 
And so inclusive communities that are centered in God's compassion, where all people are, are welcome, accessible in the sense of we kill the Christianese, the churchy stuff. It happens in a time and rhythm and space where people actually live and with a language that they actually understand, or like Wesley had a really good saying around that plain truth for plain people, that they're transformative. So people in their own way and in their own journey with the Holy Spirit are being on a journey of grace with God, and that they're connected in relationship with the larger church and with each other and kind of a network church for a network society. So I see some of those things emerging, and I I hope we'll see more of them over time. That's beautiful. Love that. You know what I want? I want the vision of Methodists to be a movement again instead of a denomination. Mm -hmm. The horse is out of the barn on that. I got that. But if we could somehow see ourselves as a movement where the spirit's on the loose, I actually think we could keep some of our structure if we did that, but it would be employed so differently. And I just feel like we've sort of forgotten that. I would love to think that we have some clarity coming. I, I haven't seen it yet, I don't think. But basically, I, I want to make our theology more important than our polity. I want to make our who more important than our how. If we did that, I think we could chase the spirit in some pretty cool ways and this, let the spirit chase us. And now that I've said that, you're never going to let me talk in public again. But yeah. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to let you talk in public again after that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I get a sense that a part of the powerful aha that's going on in so many places is just discovering the gift of the community, the gifts of the community, the the neighbors, the partners, the wise ones that are already out there in the middle of things, many of whom are so deeply spiritual, and just to be able to connect and to harness and partner and grow together, oh my goodness, we're surrounded, and yet we are so isolated. Mm. Yeah. You guys work on the edge, on the boundary between gathered community and the world out there, do you see the walls or the the line that sort of defines church inside this circle? Do you see that becoming more of a dotted line in the future? Or what do you see? I hope it's more of a dotted line. I think if it isn't, our future will be pretty short. The image that I keep coming back to is that scene in, in the movie, and you've seen pictures from it of Dunkirk, right? Where You know, there's not one big thing that's going to be the solution. But, you know, instead over the horizon, there's just crusting a thousand tiny boats. This is your tiny thing, Michael. You know, Mm. it's none of us by themselves. None of them can save anybody who's stuck on a beach. But together, some pretty remarkable things can happen. And it gives me hope that we're a connectional system because of that, right? We, I think we, we do know how to work together when we can get out of our own way. But I hope it's a dotted line that kind of makes room for some new boats to come through. Yeah, and for me, I'm, I'm not remembering where I got this from. So this is a copyright infringement moment here. But <laughs> I heard it said that, you know, shepherds in Australia don't use fences, they use wells right. and, and such expansive range of like terrain. If you, if you have a well, the flock will stay around that well. 
whereas a fence, you know, creates a division and a, a, a line. And I think the church has been really good at building fences and defining groups and who's in this, not so great at like discovering the wells of the Holy Spirit that are already in our community that are bubbling up from the ground and helping people kind of find that and lift that up and congregate around it. And I love the idea of like centered set communities versus bounded set communities where we're really good at bounded set. Like here's the gate code, you know, you say your membership vows and recite the apostles creed and you know, you're in for life and, and there's a clear, like who's in and out. Whereas a centered set is we just have a clear center for, for the communities we're starting. That's Jesus, his living person uh, who's alive and risen and, and with us. And, and we're just trying to create a community of belonging around him. We know people are moving towards him. Some people are moving away from him. Some people are like inching in close. Some are like, I don't know. I'm just here to check this out. But creating that kind of a space that I think the Holy Spirit can really work in that. So if we could get rid of lines altogether, that'd be awesome. And just create, you know, community of around something that gives life to people. Love that. You know, when I think about this this well that's sort of drawing us to the center, I mean, we have Christ there at that point where we're digging that well and reaching into all the riches of that. I also think about a covenant community. It's not exclusive, like you're, you're either in or you're out, but, but around that well, people that make covenant around certain ways of living, certain kinds of value, certain kinds of celebration, that in itself, not everybody has to, to make that covenant, and it's certainly not a, a test of who's in and who's out. But when you have covenant around the well, uh, people sort of come in from a ways. Kenda, you work, in, you work with Presbyterians a lot. They're big on covenant. Very big on covenant, yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, as you think about the very nature of faith community, what have, have you thought much lately or done any work lately around the nature of the covenant <laughs> that we that we make with one another at the, in the middle of it? Well, it's funny because we have a part of Princeton Seminary's stated objectives are that we are a covenant community. Our Bible professors go a little crazy over that because you know, in the Old Testament where people are making covenant with each other, it's because they don't trust each other that they're making the covenant. So it's not a warm, fuzzy kind of promise-keeping kind of thing. But the way you described it just now, Paul, and with Michael, that image of the well and the shepherds in Australia, of course, I'm going to now take that and use it forever. The idea that, you know, when you gather people around something that's so life-giving, you have a decision to make. Are we going to share it or are we going to keep it? And if, you, if you've got a well and you hoard it for your own community, there are, there are communities that get built that way, right? I, I worry in some ways that that's, we've got a lot of people doing that right now, you know, in our country. But if you make part of that covenant that we're going to live in a way that shares it, that feels like the kind of covenant that, you know, we're talking about as people forming Christian communities. And that requires a different way of treating the land around the well than if you're trying to keep it for yourself. So I'm really moved by that. You know, you talk about the lack of trust that that sort of precipitated early covenant making. I mean, the church and the and the has a little bit of a queasy relationship with people outside of its 
boundaries and theology and so forth, a little covenant making might be in order here to build some trust <laughs> with some neighbors. Yeah, could be, could be. You know, the the one thing I would add is I, I find rules of life really helpful that the community develops together. I think covenant's definitely been used in some negative ways that have caused harm. But as I'm like, these communities are kind of emerging and I'm I'm there trying to like be involved and supportive. I think one role I do have as a person within that community is to minimize harm of people. And I think that's why, Paul, to your, yeah, we need to make some covenant with the world that we cleans up some of our, our damage and our harm, right? So when those kind of things, you know, that can happen in a, in a, uh, inherited church that can happen in an emerging form of church, but a leader has a responsibility to minimize that and to create safety for people. So covenant can be helpful in that way, I think, or a rule of life that just develop communally together that has, you know, boundaries that are going to minimize harm to people. Simple rules of life. That is a theme that I hear a lot these days as I'm out about coaching and conversing in the U.S. and beyond. A lot of people playing with that idea, bringing that sort of that monastic concept, but keeping it as simple as possible. Just a few really good rules (laughs) can make a lot of difference. Hey, one more question for you all. What are you working on right now that few people other than your spouse know about? What's what's cooking in your kitchen? If you can reveal it without spilling, you know, without getting in front of your timetable. I want to hear from Michael. (laughs) I'll go first. I'm working on a really, really cool book project with Stephanie Morehand. It's around anti-racism. We're trying to maybe come up with some some different language around healing, racialization. Not that we want to shy away from the need for anti-racism and how direct we need to actually be with it in some contexts, but it also just completely shuts down anybody who we actually want to have a conversation with about it. So we're trying to navigate all of that. But so I've been, you know, waist deep in James Cone and a lot of Leonardo Boff and seeing how maybe base ecclesial communities that are have a social justice, like kind of bringing together church planting and social justice. Those things get broken apart and separated sometimes. But what we see, one of the really cool things happening with contextual church or fresh expressions is we kind of join the diversity that's already in our communities. That's usually not actually in, in, in an inherited church per se. But as we, we join into that and then we find ways to like in innovation language feedback loops or basically just kind of channel that back into inherited congregations, it can actually create a more equitable and diverse multicultural kind of situation in churches just by failure, like trying to do that from the pulpit, trying to do that through teaching ministries, really, really challenging, but to actually kind of do that from the outside in to kind of join with the Holy Spirit student communities, channel that inside. Um, Stephanie and I think that has some real potential. And so we're working on that. That sounds exciting. That'd be great. Yeah. You're a good duo for that. So um, we've got, oh, there's a lot going on, but a uh, couple of the things that I'm involved in are, I've been working with young adults for a long time now that trying to figure out how they're making sacred spaces outside of churches 
I found a place in the UK, they call them third cathedrals, kind of like a third space, I guess, but um, basically finding ways. I've got a group of students that are meeting to talk about young adult rituals, you know, and what that looks like and try to see if there's any overlap with what churches might be about to help them name and claim some of the transitions that they're going through in their lives. And we're just about to start a big project on helping, basically helping seminaries, helping theological education, teach social innovation, teach spiritual entrepreneurship in ways that are baked in to the identity of people who are leading faith communities. So that that is on the very front end of it, but that's going to take a lot of a lot of my time in the next couple of years. So if I hear that last part correctly, we're talking about preparing people who are who are called to be social entrepreneurs as faith leaders, preparing them to do that and not just to pastor a settled congregation. That that might be one place it goes, but I think it could also go to I my, I've got a hunch that pastors actually have a distinct role in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting this from Kathy McShane and Elon Babchek. They've identified the pastoral role as not necessarily being the innovator, not necessarily being the entrepreneur, but the one who makes space and, I, and, and gives it a theological story to live within and to help people understand that as something that God blesses as their ministries so that they don't think they have to be on a church committee to do ministry. So I, I think we're at the early stages of this, but it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, that the categories that we have when we talk about doing something new or we talk, they're, they're categories that work better with SpaceX, actually, than with the church. God is not, doesn't care about a better mousetrap. God cares about better lives. Mm-hmm. And so how the church participates in what God is already doing in that score is a different way of thinking about it. We just don't have a lot of language or a lot of experience with bringing that together, I guess. So yes, it's a, and the interest has been overwhelming. So I think there are more people thinking about it than I thought were thinking about it. They just didn't have a place to put it. That is really exciting. Both of you, you are crazy busy wearing lots of hats, doing lots of things beyond your day jobs, plural. Thank you for making time for this conversation. Our listeners appreciate being able to spend a few moments with you just to hear what you're seeing and what you're, what you're up to in this very, very strange and joyful moment of history. I would hang out with y'all anytime. Same here. I'm Paul Nixon, and I am here with Michael Beck and Kenda Dean. We're talking about the unfolding future of faith community, and it's been fun. And I hope to get you get you all back in a, a year or so, because a lot of water will go under the bridge in the next 12 months. Church is Changing is a podcast ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.